Hello, I'm John Rossi, a touring drummer with a love of all things animal. When I'm on the road, I visit as many zoos, aquariums. Hey, wait a minute. What's going on? Hey, what's going on there? Hello? Hello? We interrupt your regularly scheduled program to bring you Rossafari Zoo News. News you can use from the world of zoos and conservation. Every week, we bring you breaking news and analysis from around the globe, featuring the animals you love and the people who care for them. And here's your anchorman, John Rossi. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of Rossafari Zoo News, your look at all of the world of news as it pertains to zoos, aquariums, conservation, animals, all that nifty stuff. I'm excited to have you back, and um, we're going to start off with me saying thank you to everyone who listened last week and uh, heard my aborted Zoo News episode and, uh, you know, either sent up kind thoughts or or reached out. I heard from a lot of you and um, it, it was really nice, you know, knowing that the community was not only behind me, but uh, cheering for the family member in question. And I can tell you now that, you know, we're on the other side of it, that uh, everything turned out okay. I'm not going to go into a ton of detail, but some amazing doctors did some really incredible work and um, took care of my grandfather, who is 90 years old and just wildly important to me. And, um, you know, I know that day is coming, but uh, it wasn't last Friday or Saturday, which for a minute I thought it was going to be. So um, I'm really grateful that 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 all worked out and that these amazing doctors were able to do amazing things to help my poppy out. I call him poppy. I love that man dearly. And uh, yeah, so thank you all for for your support. It really means a lot to me. All right. So as this episode is going to be released while I am on my road trip back from California and Arizona uh, all the way back to Pennsylvania, um, I am recording a lot of this super early. So I'm going to go out on a limb now and uh, promote something that I'm not entirely sure will be live when this drops. But hey, I really hope so. And if not, then um, I guess my listeners will just get a preview. And that is an incredible collaboration between Peace, Love, and Tie-Dye and Rossafari that is currently out there to raise money for Red Panda Network. You can get onto the Rossafari Instagram page or go to at peace love ampersand tie dye with the word ampersand written out. So really probably just go to the Rossafari page and click a link and you can order your brand new custom made customizable tie dye red panda shirt. What? That sounds insane. I know it is. This is the coolest thing ever. My friend Carissa is a tie-dye artist, and she doesn't just make tie-dye like you see when you see tie-dye, although she does some really amazing normal tie-dye too, but she actually knows how to make like designs and faces, and you can do like peace signs and skulls and different animals. And she and I talked when we first met, and I found out that this was her passion, and we instantly realized that we needed to collaborate on a Red Panda shirt and then send those proceeds to Red Panda Network. So we did. 
I took about a dozen of my favorite photographs of Bandit, one of the red pandas currently at the Columbus Zoo and one of the ones that I have a very special relationship with. And I sent them on to Carissa, who was able to turn them into tie-dye red panda shirts. It's so cool. I'm wearing one as I record this. You will be able to see picture and picture and picture of them on the Rossafari Instagram page, Facebook page, all that stuff. I am so proud of this amazing art and the fact that it's going to a good cause. So make sure that you go and check out this amazing tie-dye shirt and buy one or two. Ten? Twenty? And, uh, you know, you'll be you'll be giving money to an amazing cause and getting a really incredible one of a kind piece of red panda clothing that you'll never see anything like it anywhere. This is so next level. It is so cool. Almost everything except for the white markings on the panda are actually tie dye. I, I can't even explain it to you. Go check it out. It is amazing. OK, enough about that. But go help me help Red Panda Network. Yay. And actually, since I'm talking about red pandas now, I'll drop this in the intro, even though it was going to be in the conservation news section. But um, with Turning Red coming out a week ago today, the Disney Conservation Fund has given a grant to Red Panda Network to help protect endangered wild red pandas and their habitats in western Nepal. I love that Disney took this step along with releasing the movie. Very cool. Very cool. But all right, enough of me blathering on about red pandas, which is something I have never said before because it's never really enough. But anyway, here's an ad. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamer Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com studios. And hey, just a quick reminder before we get started here that you can help me share this news with my community by tagging me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Rossafari, or TikTok at Rossafari Pod. Anytime you see a cool story that may fit this show, you can also email it to me, rossafaripod at gmail.com, or like if we're friends, text me or something, or just you just randomly got my number or something. But probably don't do that. Sometimes people do that, and it's it's actually kind of weird. But, uh, you know, message me, DM me, tag me, whatever. Anyway, that brings us to... All right.
right. So since I am recording this kind of early, uh, I can't comment too much on the situation in Ukraine since it seems to be developing every day. But I will say that some of the zoos in Ukraine are starting to run out of food and have some problems finding some of the specialty items that certain animals enjoy. One gorilla in particular really loves yogurt, and they're having a hard time finding yogurt for said gorilla. So, um, yeah, the situation is not looking great, friends. But uh, again, I'm I'm recording this almost a full week in advance, and I'm just going to Hope that things have worked out and that you're listening to this and going, oh, silly John, things are so much better now and all the animals are happy. And back on the home front, the San Diego Zoo has officially opened Wildlife Explorers Base Camp. If you didn't hear last week's episode with Nikki Boyd of Red Panda Network and the San Diego Zoo, shame on you. Go listen immediately because it is amazing. And you'll also get to hear my extended preview of the base camp area as I got to go on a tour of it before it opened up. It's a really amazing place, and it's really cool to see that the public seems to be loving it. In fact, Brooke Shields and Sean White, two celebrities who live in the San Diego area, one of whom is a movie and television star, and one of whom is a snowboarder who also, I guess, does some snowboard commentary and stuff every four years for the Winter Olympics, uh, went on opening day and brought their cool celebrity status to the San Diego Zoo to help celebrate this amazing new exhibit. It is the largest single new exhibit that the San Diego Zoo has ever opened at one time, and it is spectacular. I highly recommend checking it out, as well as that episode that I mentioned. Now, y'all know that I love the San Diego Zoo. It is the most amazing zoo, and it is an accredited zoo. And uh, accreditation is not necessarily the only way to tell that a zoo is a good zoo, but it is a darn good way to be able to assume the best about a facility. And sometimes we see the difference when we look at a story like this. Two people and a camel were killed after a loose camel went on a rampage at a petting zoo in Tennessee. The camel lived at Shirley Farms Petting Zoo. And, you know, for the record, camels are protected contact in the AZA. Even zookeepers can't just go in with them willy-nilly. But uh, apparently this camel got loose at the petting zoo and uh, killed two people before the sheriff's office showed up. And when they saw the craziness going on, decided they had no choice but to use their weapons to take out the camel. It's a terrible tragedy and um, something that could be completely avoided. And, you know, again, I'm not saying that nothing like that ever happens in an AZA facility. We all know stories of times that uh, things like that do happen, but it's usually, I guess the difference is it's usually that, you know, somebody made a bad choice. Um, a, A member of the public crossing barriers, doing things that they shouldn't have done, and as such, getting to the animals when the animals then decide to, you know, be animals. In this case, the fact that the enclosure for the camels wasn't good enough to keep the camel in uh, created the problem. And so again, that's where, you know, accreditation always looks like a good thing. Again, it's not always the only way to tell. But it sure does help. So uh, highly recommend 
making sure that the zoos that you're going to are AZA or ZAA accredited, or if you're in other parts of the world, EAZA or, you know, whatever y'all have. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully more zoos will continue to get accredited to try to avoid tragedies like this. I hope that we can learn as a community when tragedy strikes. Al Bustan Zoological Center in United Arab Emirates has announced a very special birth, a leucistic okapi. The okapi is named Mzimu, which is Swahili for spirit or ghost. This is the first leucistic okapi on record, and uh, it's really cool to see. There's a lack of pigmentation in the hair and skin, giving Mzimu his rare white-gray appearance. But because it's like a white-gray appearance, you can still see the pure white stripes that make the okapi so unique looking. It is really beautiful and a sight to behold. And you can behold it by going to at Joel Sartore, J-O-E-L, S-A-R-T-O-R-E, on Instagram. He's the photographer who's doing the Nat Geo um, photo arc, a incredible project. If you don't know about it, go check him out and learn about it. It's amazing. And he was able to get some video of this perfect little creature. And uh, you can go check it out on his Instagram. Enjoy. So one of the things that I find really interesting in talking to a lot of zoo and aquarium fans is that there are a lot of people who believe that good zoos do good work and that animals thrive in captivity who still struggle with the concept of certain animals such as elephants, dolphins, belugas, stuff like that being in captivity. And I get it. I have sometimes felt the same way and wondered things myself. I think it's important for us all to constantly examine what we know and what we see and, and make sure that the industry is doing the right thing, which is why it's so cool that the AZA has recently released findings from a two-year study into cetacean welfare. The AZA teamed up with a bunch of facilities, including University of California, Irvine, Portland State University, and University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, which is important to note because none of those are AZA facilities. And they also teamed up with the Chicago Zoological Society, which not only manages the Brookfield Zoo right outside of Chicago, but also runs Sarasota Dolphin Research Program, which we've had on the podcast and um, which studies wild cetaceans, dolphins in that case. So, you know, they really care about the health of these animals, not just in captivity, but in the wild. They led a study which included 43 accredited organizations in seven countries, and they collected data from 216 common and Indo-Pacific bottlenose dolphins, 13 beluga whales, and eight Pacific white-sided dolphins. The findings were probably not surprising to people who are okay with dolphins and other cetaceans in captivity, but I want to share some of them with you. Perhaps the most interesting thing that the study showed was that habitat size is not a strong indication of cetaceans thriving, but instead the management style and enrichment given to them far outweighs the importance of the size of the habitat. Not to anthropomorphize here, but the comparison made is, well, if you're a human, would you rather be in a small, cozy house with a bunch of stuff to do or in a huge, empty house? 
Obviously, most people would choose letter A, and it turns out that so would most dolphins. The study was also able to put together a bunch of ways to track the health, both physical and mental, of cetaceans in captivity, including by checking cortisol levels and, you know, researching their poop for stuff because, of course, poop matters, as well as their blood when they do blood draws and stuff like that. We learned a ton from this two-year study. And, of course, for cynics saying that even though a lot of the facilities involved are not AZA-specific, the fact that the AZA is the one that led this study, that, you know, there might be some questions of the validity of it. The study has been peer-reviewed in the journal PLOS1 uh, through non-AZA peers. So it looks like the science is sound, and at the end of the day, we've learned a ton about what enrichment makes the lives of cetaceans better. We've learned that you really don't have to worry about habitat size within reason. Again, if you've ever been to a, a facility that maybe isn't the best facility, if you've ever been to a non-accredited place where there are belugas in, you know, little fish tanks, it feels like that. <laughs> yeah, that's a problem. And I've, I've encountered some of that in my day and uh, I don't love it. But, you know, if you're going to a place like Shed or like the Georgia Aquarium or something like that and you're seeing cetaceans and you're worried about the habitat size, you really don't have to. Um, and we've gotten so much information about what baseline mental and physical health stuff looks like in blood and fecal samples from these animals that it's going to have a huge positive impact on their welfare moving forward. This is a huge, huge win. Yay. And finally this week, two bits of news out of Columbus. You know, Columbus, Columbus Zoo, Columbus, Ohio. We like it there. Uh, first of all, you know, a big reason why the Columbus Zoo is not currently accredited by the AZA is because of improper former business practices done by former CEO and other people in charge there. Well, um, the board of directors of the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium actually sued former CEO Thomas Stelf, and they have now settled with Stolf agreeing to repay $400,000, which he received inappropriately. So yeah, that money will actually be going back to the Columbus Zoo, which I think is pretty darn cool. And one other bit of info out of Columbus. I don't believe this has been announced yet. I haven't seen anything, but uh, I know people who know people. And um, let's see, this is, I'm recording this on Monday, March 14th, and it'll be out on... Uh, Friday, March 18th, and um, next week, the week after that, the Columbus Zoo will be having its accreditation review with the ZAA. So the odds are that they will soon be an accredited facility again, this time with the ZAA. Now, you may wonder what that means for their AZA accreditation when they try and get it back again next year, and the answer is nothing. There are actually zoos that are accredited by both, and Columbus will probably, I'm assuming here, be one of those. I'm pretty glad that they took this step and that they're going to remain an accredited facility while they wait for the AZA to reaccredit them. And now... Conservation! Conservation! News time! Oh yeah! You may remember that koalas were recently declared endangered by the Australian government. Well, it turns out that's not the only animal... 
Down Under, that is being added to that list. Gang Gang Cockatoos and Swift Parrots are also now officially labeled as endangered in Australia. Yes, that's right. There's a bird called the Gang Gang Cockatoo, which is a name that could only really exist in Australia. I did a story a few months ago about the fact that Burmese pythons have absolutely had an explosion of their population in South Florida. Now, for those of you who don't know this, Burma is not in South Florida, and therefore that makes these pythons an invasive species. But they have had a huge population growth, uh, probably stemming from people getting them as small pets and then releasing them when they get huge, and it's causing a real problem for the Everglades. However, conservationists are now saying that the Everglades are fighting back. Bobcats and other Florida wildlife are starting to feed on the eggs of pythons in the Everglades. They're starting to figure out that these eggs exist and that they're there for the taking, and um, so they're starting to eat them. That is, uh, that is generally the first step in balancing out populations in the wild. I mean, obviously, humans who cause the problem need to, you know, be taking steps to eliminate the problem in other ways. But uh, this is the first time that we have had actual evidence that the Everglades are fighting back and that some of the pythons that would otherwise be hatching will not be. So uh, it's cool to see that uh, next step happening in this evolutionary battle. Now, tossing it back to Australia for a second, the Perth Zoo is the only institution in the world that is currently breeding numbats under a successful XC2 program that has seen the release of over 220 individuals into the wild, which is incredibly important as the numbat is an incredibly endangered species. Well, now the Perth Zoo has supplied the University of Western Australia with a numbat sample that it used to sequence the entire genome of this animal. Having this full genome map adds a resource to the conservation toolkit that could be useful for studying genetic diseases in a wild population that is only thought to have about 1,300 members right now. So that's a huge deal in case any uh, diseases should happen to hit the population, such as has happened with the Tasmanian devils and devil facial tumor disease. In fact, given the success of this effort with the numbat, the Perth Zoo is going to help geneticists sequence the genomes of over 100 different species, starting with endangered species that live in Western Australia. Pretty cool. I wasn't entirely sure where to throw this next story, as it could go into a lot of different places, but I've decided it's conservation news. Um, and I'm the one who makes the podcast, so it's now conservation news. But uh, a study has officially shown that primates, including monkeys, can suffer infertility due to COVID-19. Now, I know this is a thing that was rumored back when all of the human COVID-19 stuff got rolling and some people believed it and some didn't and some thought it was a hoax and blah, 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 blah. But now, while this doesn't necessarily mean it will interfere with human fertility at all, there are now definitely primates that we have proven can suffer infertility because of COVID-19. Just another reason to, you know, try not to get this disease. Maybe get a vaccine. Booster. Maybe. Maybe. Brazil has recently announced an incredible plan to try to restore 
12,400 acres of forest that has been destroyed by humans being humans. This forest is located in the watershed area that serves Sao Paulo, so it will not only help the humans there, but also, I mean, watersheds are a place where a lot of animals gather and live and try to thrive. So this is going to be a huge undertaking that should have an amazing impact for the animals of Brazil. Another story that I've been following for a while that I I think has some cool updating to do here is that um, I mentioned a while ago that the government of Vietnam was really stepping up their attempts to stop wildlife trafficking. And it really seems to be going well. Um, Two endangered turtles were just recently uh, retrieved in Ho Chi Minh City and turned to the Ho Chi Minh City Forest Protection Department, who will arrange new permanent homes for them. And that's just the latest of a bunch of trafficked animals that have been not sent out of Vietnam because of the impressive work being done by the government there to prevent this. You know, wildlife trafficking is a huge, huge issue. And it really is something that, you know, the governments of the world can do a lot about. All it takes is time effort and resources and governments they've got the resources they might spend them on other things but they've got them but that's where we all come into play because if citizens let it be known that this stuff matters to us there is a much better chance that the government will respond and take steps to protect the environment now i know that most of my listeners are american and a lot of us myself included have some uh Thoughts on how effective the government can be right now. And I get it. And I'm not going to turn this into a political podcast, but we still need to be doing what we can. And, um, you know, the recent stories coming out of Ho Chi Minh City prove that sometimes it really works. And here's another story in that same vein that I really like. On February 24th, the president of the Republic of Panama signed the Rights of Nature Law entitled, and I apologize if I mispronounce this, Que reconoce los derechos de la naturaleza y las obligaciones del Estado relacionadas con estos derechos. Obviously, that is not in English. But um, (laughs) the first article of the law states that nature is a subject of rights and the state and people have the obligation to protect and respect these rights. By establishing these rights of nature in Panama, some of the things that have been recognized include nature's right to exist, persist, and regenerate her vital cycles, amongst other things. This is basically an overarching law that is going to protect a lot of nature in Panama. And this was a two-year process involving proposing the law, drafting it, revising it, debating it, opening up to the public, and eventually getting it passed. This stuff can work, y'all. And while we're talking about good news and conservation news, which isn't something that always happens, um, I have to tell you that after years of declines in the population of monarch butterflies in California, they have made a huge comeback. In 2020, scientists counted less than 2,000 monarch butterflies in California. In 2021, they counted... 247,000. 
as of now, no one knows what exactly caused this huge boom, but uh, I'll take it, y'all. And, you know, this is another one of those things where a lot of people get involved in butterfly conservation in their local area. They plant milkweed. They create microhabitats. Uh, they agree to kind of rewild a part of their yard, meaning maybe don't, you know, cut the grass and, and let things get a little, little growy and wild back there and just in, in a part of it even. And all of that stuff can have a huge impact on local native species. And my guess is that is at least, you know, somewhat responsible for what has happened to the monarch butterflies. This is awesome news. And finally, for this week's conservation news segment, we have recently found out, <laughs> we, like I had anything to do with this. Nope. But scientists at the University of Aberdeen have recently found out that measuring the body width captured in aerial images of dolphins can establish which dolphins are pregnant. In other words, we can now use drones as dolphin pregnancy tests to see what's going on out there in the wild, which dolphins need extra protection, which dolphins may be calving, and uh, we can also use the data to learn more about, you know, wild dolphin moms and, and pregnant dolphins and their behaviors and what they do differently. This is awesome, awesome news. This was a good week for conservation news. Usually it all makes me sad. And that brings us to a very special new segment just for this week that I can't actually add music to or even sing this correctly because of legal reasons, but we're calling it na 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 bat news. That's right, y'all. I have not one, not two, but three stories about bats to share with y'all. First of all, zoologists have discovered a rare threatened bat along the Norris Reservoir that has not been seen for years in its home location in East Tennessee. The northern long-eared bat has not been seen in that area for a long time, and many people believed that they no longer live there at all. However, scientists have recently found some, which is pretty awesome, because just in the last 12 years... This population in Tennessee has declined by more than 98%. Now, this is one of those bat species that is being threatened by white-nose syndrome, something that you heard about back in the first season um, and, you know, is, is a major problem facing bats in North America right now. It's always nice to just not have to say it's because of humans. But anyway, the return or I guess I should say the rediscovery of this bat species in East Tennessee is a huge milestone for the species. That's really exciting. It's a good time to be a bat, man. Now, back in my home state of Pennsylvania, where I have not been in over two months, and man, I miss it, um, a study is being done by the Pennsylvania Game Commission into bat migration. And the study showed that one small bat traveled 418 miles, a record for the species as far as, you know, what we know, in a straight line to end up hibernating in a cave in Kentucky. The species of bat is known as the Indiana bat, and it was actually one of the 14 mammal species on the first ever official U.S. endangered species list way back in 1966. Obviously, they're still around, and we're still studying them and trying to learn more about the species, and this study in Pennsylvania is helping with that. But uh, it's crazy to know that this one bat, which we're not talking a big bat, by the way. This is a bat that weighs roughly the size of a couple sheets of paper, 
maybe some paper clips, according to the article that I read. So, um, yeah, we are talking a tiny little creature that went all the way from Pennsylvania to Kentucky just to take a nap. And honestly, I'm so tired right now. I, um, I get it, my friend. I get it. I've been traveling a lot, too, and now I'm ready to go to bed. Anyway, I promised you three bat stories, and don't worry, I won't be Robin, you of a third one. Here it is. Some idiot in Austin, Texas, decided to release a live bat into a movie theater that was playing The Batman, the most recent movie about Batman. The theater paused the movie, but after realizing there was nothing they could do about it, told people that they were going to continue and that they could either leave with a full refund or continue to watch the movie. And most people decided to stay and hang out with the bat, which I think is pretty cool. That is definitely what I would have done. I guess that's one strategy that DC can use to get more rabid fans like Marvel. Boo. Anyway, on to... It's time for other news. It's time for other news. Hey, no, right now, then now it's time. It's time for other news. Hey, it's a segue to the park on other news. So ever since making my own octopus friend, Jupiter, I have been just raving about how cool the species is. And here's another one of those raves for y'all. A study published in Marine Pollution Bulletin documents 24 species of octopus sheltering inside glass bottles, cans, an old battery, burying themselves under a mixture of bottle tops and seashells, and even carrying plastic items around while walking on two tentacles to conceal themselves from predators. In other words, yeah, humans suck and litter way too much, especially in the ocean. But octopuses, and I know I'm still sad it's not octopi or octopan or whatever. Anyway, but octopuses are adapting and using those items to protect and hide themselves. They are just the smartest species. It's so cool. Interestingly, the octopuses in the study showed a preference for unbroken items as well as darker or opaque containers. The most common interaction recorded was using rubbish as shelter, though, as I mentioned, there were some other things being done as well. And of course, even this has a risk because sheltering or laying eggs inside things like discarded tires, batteries, or plastic objects that are breaking down could expose octopuses to heavy metals and other harmful chemicals as they break down. So, like, still not ideal, but it's so cool and impressive that octopuses have figured out how to do this. And not to terrify all of my listeners that live on the East Coast of the U.S., but apparently there is the possibility of an invasion of Joro spiders that started in Georgia and is slowly spreading out along the East Coast. These are three-inch-long spiders that use their webs to parachute. So the bad news for those of you that don't like this idea, either because you're arachnophobes or just because you don't like invasive species, which I can understand, is that this is happening, this is real, and these spiders are probably going to spread fairly quickly as they are very good at doing that. Mostly by traveling on humans who don't know that they're on their clothing or whatever. Sorry, friends. But also, they literally can use their webs like balloons or parachutes to ride the wind and travel. So that's fun. 
But the good news is that it seems like they don't have much of an effect on local food webs or ecosystems. And they are also big scaredy cats who are more likely to run away than to try to bite you. So, um, you know, sorry that these guys are coming, but uh, really probably nothing to worry about. Again, unless you think that three-inch long spiders parachuting into your life is something to worry about. That was mean. Oh, animal, oh, animal, animal holidays, animal, oh, animal, animal holidays. Hey! All right, so we start off with a reminder that March is Dolphin Awareness Month, so go be aware of dolphins. And then let's see here. This episode is coming out on the 18th, which is Global Recycling Day. March 20th is World Frog Day and World Sparrow Day. March 21st is the International Day of Forests. The 22nd is World Water Day and International Day of the Seal. And the 23rd is National Puppy Day. Make sure you give lots of love and special treats to your puppy friends, just like, you know, every other day. And those are your animal holidays for the week. And there you have it, folks. Another week of Rasafari Zoo News is in the books. I would like to say thank you to Laura Shank for being a Red Panda level patron, and also to the following people who helped me with this week's episode Anya Keen, Colleen Lenahan, Kim Cooley, Crystal Chapman, Megan Barrett, Ken Tryon, Jen Kules, Michael Sebastian, and Emily Rockbuck. Thank you all. Remember that you can tag me in stories or send them to me, and then you get your name read right there, and it'll be fun. And sometimes I'll even pronounce it right. Not often, but sometimes. And remember, friends, the words newsy credits backwards are Stiderk Yeswen. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.